0: We're in 2 Samuel 12 today, and uh, we, we see King David, um, we're following chapter 11, uh, his just terrible, terrible sin uh, with Bathsheba, and then um, having Uriah killed, um, and it seems like he's just numb to his sin. And then in chapter 12, he's confronted um, by Nathan, by, by God's word through Nathan the prophet, uh, and, and I wonder, when's the last time that God's Word just shattered you, just wrecked you? Um, we read it as Christians, like we read God's Word, hopefully a lot. We're, we're in Bible studies. Uh, you might have an app that gives you like the verse of the day. Um, we listen to sermons. I mean, we have so much access to God's Word. I know many of you are doing a Bible read through this year. Uh, but then when we're done, we, we close our Bible or, or shut down the app or turn off the sermon. And then we tend to just go on with life, sometimes as if nothing happened. Um, and yet God's Word, we know, is living and active. It's, it's able to penetrate into us. And, and I hope that that's true for you. I hope that that's true for us today. So let's pray before we get in God's Word. Lord, we thank you for your Word we, we thank you that your word tells us how it is. Uh, that, that your word tells us about you, God. That through your word, your word, you reveal yourself to us. That your word shows us who we really are and what life is, is really about. And um, God, as we see David today um, just wrecked by... by By the confrontation through your word of his sin, Lord, we we pray for our hearts. God, we pray that we would come to your word, not not just today, but always in humility. That we would come to your word uh, ready to uh, to, to see and hear your word and to respond to your word, God. So would you, by your grace, would you teach us today uh, through the the hearing of your word, through the, the teaching of your word. God, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Our truth statement today um, is virtually identical to last week's. Uh, the plan originally was for me to do chapters 11 and 12 together in one sermon. Obviously, that didn't happen. That didn't work out. So uh, so today's truth statement is almost the same. I'll, I'll let you try and figure out what the difference is between this week and last week. But um, it goes like this this week. That God's chosen king can sin so heinously. And, and God removes his sin while not removing its consequences points to the need For a greater Savior King. Again, that God's chosen King can sin so heinously, and God removes his sin while not removing its consequences points to the need for a greater savior king. Now between chapters 11 and 12, there's been a a decent amount of time that has passed. This baby uh, of David and Bathsheba's has been born. So we don't know exactly how long it's been. Maybe it's been eight, nine months, maybe more than a year. We're not sure. Um, But you remember that in chapter 11, David went to extreme lengths to cover up his sin. And I'm sure that with Uriah now out of the way, with Bathsheba as David's wife, um, I'm sure that he felt that he was in the clear, that, that everything was okay now. But if you go back to chapter 11, it ends this way. The very last words say, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, we might be able to fool everyone around us. Maybe we can hide our sin from everyone we know, even the people that know us best, but we're never able to hide our sin from God. God sees it, and thank God that He sees our sin. Praise the Lord that we can't hide it from Him. This is how verse 1 of chapter 12 begins. It says, "...and the Lord sent Nathan." To David. He came to him and said to him, and we'll pause right there. We remember back in chapter 11, David did a lot of sending, right? He sent for Bathsheba, he sent to get Uriah, he sent Uriah with the command to Joab. David uh, thought that he was in control. It's as if he was playing God and trying to control the world around him. But now it's the Lord who sends, he sends his prophet. Nathan to David and he sends him to confront him uh, for his sin. God doesn't want us to hide in our sin. He doesn't want our sin to just fester within us. God is gracious and he pursues us even, uh, even to confront us in our sin. And conviction of sin is a gift Right? It doesn't feel like it. Being convicted of your sin feels terrible. It, it feels like a punch right in the gut, but it's a sign of grace that God would care enough to convict you of your sin. Uh, you, you've probably heard of the rare genetic disorder where people can't feel pain. I believe it's called um, congenital insensitivity to pain, CIP. Uh, now, for a moment... That actually sounds like a good disorder. Uh, like you wouldn't feel uh, so many of the things that cause you pain. Like just last night, I stubbed my toe on my daughter's bed and I was hopping around like a fool. I would have loved to have not felt that pain. Um, or accidentally, like hitting your funny bone. Man, it's amazing how bad that hurts. It would be great to not. Feel that pain or, or if you've ever uh, been hammering a nail and accidentally hit your finger, we would all love to not feel that pain. So while that sounds nice, there's actually a lot of danger in, in not being able to feel that pain. So a kid with CIP, they could, they could fall off something, break their leg and hobble around as if nothing happened because they don't feel the pain. They don't have the, the same nerve endings that we have. They don't work right. So they'd hobble around and their leg's not working right, but they don't feel uh, the pain to let them know uh, that something's wrong. Or, or they could they could take their hand and touch a hot burner on a stove and, and just be burning their, their skin, their flesh, and not feel it at all. God designed our bodies uh, with pain as like this warning system, right? Without pain, we would wreck our bodies. So pain is good for us. And similarly, the conviction of sin is good for us, right? When we feel guilty, it's good for us. We don't want to feel guilty. We want to, to bury our sin. Uh, and eventually we can build up uh, a callousness to conviction of sin. But that isn't good for us. It isn't good for us to not feel the conviction of sin. So I wonder, are there areas in your life where you've built up callousness to sin? David had deceived himself. He believed that it was better for him to try and hide his sin. As if by doing that, he was able to put away his sin. He'd hoped that if he could just ignore it, then he would no longer have to deal with his sin. But it never works that way. When does ignoring a problem ever make it better? It almost always makes the problem worse. There have been a number of times in my life where money was tight and I would have a, a car problem. And the last thing I wanted to do was take my truck in and find out that I needed to pay my mechanic $800,000, $1,200, whatever the bill was. So what I would do was I would wait and wait. And sometimes I would wait months knowing in the back of my mind that I really needed to take my truck in. That if I didn't, it was just going to make matters worse. And I never said this out loud, and I knew it wasn't even true, but secretly... I hoped that somehow the problem that, that I heard or smelled or, or, or could detect in my truck, that somehow it was going to work itself out over time. That's stupid. Right? A vehicle doesn't get better just because you give it time. And ignoring sin doesn't make it better either. Right? We might get better at ignoring the problem. We might get better at pushing down those, those feelings of conviction, But just because you don't feel something doesn't mean you've taken care of your sin. Only God can take care of sin. And dealing with sin means confessing our sin and turning to Him. God knew that He was the only one who could deal with David's sin. So God sent Nathan. And Nathan would confront David Uh, He confronts his sin, but he does it in a tricky way, in a backdoor way. He tells him this story. He presents it to David the king as if it's this criminal case that King David needs to to judge and and come up with a verdict on. So Nathan ropes in David with this story. Continuing in verse 1, he says, There were two men in a certain city Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And in verse 5, it says that David's angry. It's like he doesn't even let Nathan finish the story. It says his anger was greatly kindled against that rich man. And he said to Nathan, "As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing because he had no pity." So God lets David through this story see the absolute wickedness of his own sin. David had deceived himself, right? He he'd he'd, uh, he'd gotten himself to see his sin differently than it really was. He'd convinced himself. That his sin wasn't that big of a deal. But now through this story, David sees how wicked his sin is, even though he doesn't realize that this story is all about him. He's angry with this rich man, that this man with power would steal from the poor man and kill. So David says that this man deserves death. And that he needs to repay four times what he took. Now, David didn't randomly come up with these punishments. These were prescribed in God's law. David knew God's law. Right? David may have found ways to justify his sin, to bury his sin. He was calloused towards his sin. And like we do, he, he'd rationalize why it was okay. But he knew God's law. right? This was not a case of ignorance. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Now, most of the time being told you're the man, that's a good thing, but not this time. David was ready to drop the hammer on this offender, on this criminal who turns out to be himself. He's the man that, that he was so angry at. He's the man who stole. He's the man who murdered He's the man who deserves to die. He's the one who should repay four times what he's stolen, but he can't because Uriah's dead. Nathan continues in verse 7. He says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. God's saying, David, look at how I blessed you. I I made you king. I saved you. You used to be the shepherd boy in the field. I've made you shepherd over my people. I gave you everything you have. And if it wasn't enough, I would have given you more. Verse 9 goes on, says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Wife. David had despised the word of the Lord. Verse 10 says, David had despised the Lord himself. And we've seen this word despised throughout Samuel several times. But the first time we saw it was in reference to Eli's wicked sons, that they had despised the Lord. And now David is told that he too has despised the Lord. God had made him. This great promise. I think this is specifically what what, what David's being told he despised the word of the Lord. That God had given him this incredible promise, this grace. And God had chosen, even with that, to despise the Lord. The evidence that David despised the word of the Lord was taking Bathsheba as his own wife. Killing Uriah. No matter what uh, sin we commit, it's always a symptom of the real problem. Like David, we despise God. We despise His Word. That is always at the root of our behavior. That we don't really believe that God is God. That we don't really believe His Word and trust in Him. The indictment against David, uh, it, it starts with his despising the Lord. Not adultery, not murder. Those, those came later. Because the root issues is that David despised God. And verse 10 goes on and and pronounces the punishment. God says, the sword will never leave your family, David, because of the violence that you have done. Violence will be a part of your house is what it says. And house was a word that was used over and over again in the promise made to David in 2 Samuel 7. Fifteen times this word is used. David's told that God was going to build David a house. That, that this house would be a dynasty that would last forever. That forever from the line of David, there'd be a king on the throne. Second Samuel twelve eleven it says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you and, uh, uh, out of your house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. So God was going to make this house of David, like I said, a, a great dynasty. And now God is punishing David through this house for his sin. And we will see in the upcoming chapters the, the impact of David's sin. right? The, what will happen in David's house. Now, if you're reading this story for the first time or hearing this story for the first time, the natural question is, will David's sin cause the promise to David's house? Will that be forfeited because of David's sin? Is God going to reject David? Because that's what happened with Saul, right? Saul rejected God and therefore God rejected him just like God had warned him. But with David, it was different. God promised David, when iniquity is committed, God will discipline. But his steadfast love will not depart. So we'll hold on to that. We'll see what happens in a bit. But first, David's response in 2 Samuel 12, 13. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. So David's confronted by God's word, by his sin, And he confesses. And nothing got to David in chapter 11. All the chances he had to confess, nothing did it like God's word did. Is that how you would respond? Last chapter, we saw David do everything he could to bury the evidence of his sin, to cover it up. But now, when he's confronted by God's word through the prophet Nathan, he confesses. Uh, back uh, when I was in Bible college, there were two professors that I just thought the world of. I mean, these guys were rock stars in my mind. I took every class from them I could, even if they weren't a part of my major, uh, just because I, I just thought these guys were such incredible uh, teachers. Uh, I graduated college, and uh, within a few years, I'd heard um, that each of them um, had had been caught in adultery at different times. Um, And one, uh, when he was confronted, he immediately confessed. He was humble. He was contrite. uh, He did what he could to make amends for his sin. But the other, when he was confronted... He, he tried to deny what was so obvious. He, he justified. He rationalized. He blamed other people. Blamed his own spouse. He tried to bury his problem. How do you respond when uh, another Christ follower confronts you in your sin? Because this is part of being uh, in uh, Jesus following community. Being a part of a church. right? We're told to lovingly confront each other's sin now this isn't like with your sibling growing up where where you're constantly pointing out each other's faults no this is this is lovingly for God's glory for the benefit of our brother or sister in Christ we don't look the other way from sin we're supposed to bring it to light so how do you respond when confronted are you humble do you own up to your sin or, or, or do you shift the blame? Onto someone else or something else? Do you give all the reasons why you're justified for your behavior? Do you get defensive? Do you you attack the person that brings your sin to light? Now obviously we shouldn't wait to confess our sin until we're caught. But sometimes we're like David. We're, We're just so deceived. We've so deceived ourselves that we need someone To confront us. And when that happens. man, In humility. Confess your sin. And what comes next in the rest of verse 13 through 15. um, These verses are just shocking. Uh, Continues 13b. And Nathan said to David. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Let's pause right there. Uh, The Lord is... Put away your sin. David tried to hide his sin. You could say that he was trying to put away his sin. He was trying to keep it hidden, kind of out of sight, out of mind. And though we know from his Psalms that that it was eating away at him, he probably wouldn't have admitted it at the time, but later, I think he realized that it was eating away at him. He, he said in one psalm that his bones were wasting away as this sin was left unconfessed. Psalm fifty-one. We don't, we won't look at it today, but I encourage you to read it. It's it's a psalm that comes out of David's confession here, uh, from from Nathan's uh, confrontation. It's it's David's response. To, to Nathan's words, and it's, it's a beautiful psalm. But David, he couldn't put away his sin. Only the Lord could do that. Only God had the authority, only God had the power to not hold David's sin against him. And that is good news for David. This is good news for you and me. That God can make it so that our sin isn't held against us. But it also presents a problem. And God is just. Scripture tells us God is good. He's righteous. He, he can put away the sin, or how can he put away the sin of a lustful, wife-stealing, murder-ordering man? Right? If this story were on the news, right, and we, we knew that these details were facts, and then we hear that the judge just looks the other way and, and lets this man off scot-free, there'd be rioting. Psalm 103 10 and 11 says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. That is great news, but how can God be just and simultaneously not give us the justice that we deserve? We know scripture says, the wages of sin is death. And I think deep down, Each of us would admit that that's what we deserve. How can God put away sin? Don't get me wrong. I I want God to put away my sin, but how can he do that? Because if we're intellectually honest, it's problematic. And this is why we so desperately need Jesus. God couldn't sweep our sin under the rug and hide it. That's what David tried to do. No, sin had to be dealt with. Sin had to be atoned for. The righteous wrath of God or the right wrath of God needed to be met. And God's plan was for Christ to be our substitute, that he would die the death we deserve to die so that our sin could be paid for, so that we could have life in Christ. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness. And the next verse, I think, points to how hard this truth is. I believe it points us straight to Jesus. Nathan continues in verse 14. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And this is brutal, right? This is absolutely brutal. David's sin was put away, but there was a great, great Cost. The son of David would die. And that, that happens later in the chapter. We're not going to read it together in this sermon, but that does happen. And we could spend a whole sermon on this. We, we aren't going to do that today. But my my heart goes out to uh, parents that have lost a child. And I don't even know what, what reading this or hearing this stirs up in you. Or, or maybe you haven't lost a child, but still, this this makes us squirm. We ask, why? Why did the son of David die for David's sin? Right, we have thoughts like, that's not fair. That doesn't seem right. David indulges in a crime. His sin is taken care of. But instead of him dying, his child dies. Um, uh, let me give a, a short answer to you. And again, there's so much more that could be said about this that that really should be said about this. Uh, I guess I start with, do you trust that God is good? And and actually I warn you too, when you read scripture or, or even just going through life, if you find yourself judging God for what he's done, that should set off a red flag. That should make you pause and and think about it. Because there are places like this in scripture. um, And and what we need to do is we need to come humbly. Approach the word humbly. Recognizing that we do not know everything. That that God is the all-knowing one. So I come back to this. I I ask myself, if God is good, and I believe that wholeheartedly, without a doubt. If God is good, then even in something like this... That, that just makes me squirm, right? Something that, that that doesn't seem right. We have to go back to, I trust in God. I trust that He is all-knowing, that He sees all the things I do not see. I, I trust in His perfect wisdom, in His goodness. I trust in His perfect justice. So even if this seems off to me, I trust that God in this thing that He has done is right and good. That's the short answer. Um, I know for, for some of you, you've already processed things like this before. Uh, for others of you, maybe this has been eating at you for a while, or maybe this is brand new, and I've just stirred up this new controversy in you. If you want to talk more about this, I'd love to do that with you, or one of our elders would love to do that with you. You could fill out the connection card below the video, and we'll get in touch with you, but let's let's keep moving on here. I think David could see that, that his son, this son of David, was dying as a substitute for him. And, and I don't know how many times I've read this story, how many times I've heard this story without seeing this. You, you think about the story that Nathan tells David that there's this lamb that, that was killed. And I'd never connected that before to Jesus that Jesus, the lamb who would be slain, the spotless lamb sacrificed for sinners so that the just and holy God could rightly forgive our sins because God has to punish sin. So God has Nathan tell this story about a lamb that didn't do anything wrong that was slain. God atones for our sin with the death of a lamb and with the death of the son of David. So we, we, read, we hear about the lamb from Nathan and then we read about the son of David that dies. And it's crazy that God would give Nathan this story of the lamb unjustly killed to wake David up to see his sin. And then, and then in verse 14, David dies. A lamb dies, the son of David dies, but then smack dab in the middle of that Nathan's words that the Lord has put away your sin, David, and you will not die. Lamb dies, the Son of David dies, but David doesn't die. He deserved death, but God atones for our sin. He uses a lamb and a son of David. Jesus, the lamb who is slain, we're told in John, The the lamb that was slain to take away the sins of the world. Jesus, the son of David, who died not because he deserved it. No, he died as a substitute so that God could put away the sin of all who would turn to Jesus and trust in him. Jesus is the lamb. Jesus is the son of David. His sacrifice is how God puts away our sin when we trust in him. Have you trusted in Jesus or are you like David trying to put away sin yourself? Right? Do you see what it took for David to be forgiven? Right? He said, he confessed his sin. He said, I've sinned against the Lord. If you haven't trusted in Jesus' sacrifice, that's what it takes is confession that you've sinned against the Lord, believing in Jesus. We repent and we trust in Jesus. Now Christians, if you have trust in the Lord, are you still running to your sin? The cross calls us to leave sin. The sin that we're told so easily entangles us. The sin that's crouching at the door waiting to pounce. Sin that is ready to wreak havoc in our families. Sin that hopes to distract us from life in God. Sin that wants to take us to places we swear we'd never go. Have you worked hard to build up calluses to your sin? Maybe that sin is anger. Or maybe it's gossip. Maybe your sin is, is words that, that are anything but loving. Or, or maybe the sin that you so often run to is your love of, of stuff, your possessions, or maybe money. Parents, is your sin the way you exalt your children? And I mean going way beyond the sacrifices that a parent is supposed to make, but instead living for your kids. Have your kids become your God? Maybe your sin connects to what we talked about last week in chapter 11. And obviously with the nature of the story of David and Bathsheba, I talked a lot about men. And if you have a smartphone, you have access to see stuff, to expose yourself to to things that are not good for you. And you can do it anywhere you want, anytime you want. I didn't talk about that sin for women. And we know that... That studies show, the data shows that more and more women are, are, are falling into that same, uh, that same sin. Are you justifying and rationalizing what you expose yourself to? Or, or, or maybe you aren't looking at anything graphic, but maybe it's the books you read, the movies you watch, and it spurs on these thoughts in your mind. It gets these fantasies going that, that are anything but godly. Or maybe your sin that you come back to over and over again is lying. It's just more convenient. So you tell these partial truths. You tell yourself uh, that your lies aren't hurting anyone. But in reality, it's the lies that you're telling yourself that perpetuate this sin. And maybe I didn't nail your go-to sin, but I know I don't need to. I know that even if you're really callous to your sin, we all know what it is that we struggle with, the sin that we run to. And today is a day to turn to Christ and confess your sin. This is a day to admit that you can't take care of your sin, that only God can do that. Because the lamb was killed, because Jesus, the son of David, died in your place. That's how your sin can be forgiven. That's how your sin can be dealt with. Have you confessed to him? I want to make one more observation from this passage. Uh, God forgives the sin of David, but you'll notice there's still a lot of consequences that, that come to David in his life. And just because God forgives our sin, that doesn't mean that he removes all the consequences in this life. And I think sometimes we think that God forgiving us means he removes all of our consequences. And that just isn't true. David's life was spared by God, he put away his sin, but in his wisdom and in his grace, God disciplined David through consequences. Hebrews 12, if you read verses 4 through 11, man, we read uh, about our parents. A father knows. Right, how to discipline a kid and what's good for him, and and even more so, our Heavenly Father disciplines us. God promises some hard things to David. Some hard consequences will come. There will be violence in his house, and we're going to see that in the upcoming chapters. As I already mentioned, at the end of this chapter, David's son dies as a result of David's sin. So God disciplines us to help grow us. He forgives us, and He is good to to let the consequences of our sin help grow us. Consequences teach us how to live. It's like that genetic condition that I I mentioned earlier. right? The consequences of our sin are like like pain. They, They help us learn the things that are not good for us. If we didn't have those consequences, we would just continue to run back over and over again, no matter how much God tells us they're bad. David was forgiven. His sin was put away. But God, in His grace, disciplined David through consequences. God loves us way too much to let us stay in the same place. Well, chapters 11 and 12, Help us see that even though our sin is wretched, it's wicked, and even though God puts away sin for those who trust in the son of David, um, God is, he's the one that puts away our sin. He's the one, because Jesus was our substitute, is our substitute if we trust in him, he's the one that can deal with sin, as bad as it is. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, God, we are so grateful that you died on the cross for our sin. We, we're grateful that that even though our sin is absolutely wretched, that, that God has made a way through the cross for our sin to be dealt with. That, that if we trust in you, that our sin is put away, that we're forgiven. Lord, we pray that we would uh, we would believe that truth, that we would con- come to you confessing our sin knowing that when we confess our sin, you're faithful to forgive us. Lord, for anyone that has not done that, I pray, Lord, that that the truth of this passage would, would continue to pound home the truth of the gospel to them and that they would respond to you in faith, Jesus. Lord, for those who have already responded, God, would we not let calluses develop? God, would we not be callous to our sin? God, would you be so good as to show us our sin, confront us with our sin, and I pray that we would want to get rid of those calluses and we would run to you, Jesus. Lord, we love you. We, we, we thank you that, that even though we're in this pandemic, that we, that we can still, as a church, gather virtually in this way. And I just pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray for everyone watching this video, God, that our eyes would be on you, that our trust would be in you no matter what's happening in this world. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.